is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Memory is a powerful tool. Last week, conductor Michael Stern discussed with me the legacy of Leonard Bernstein. Through family connections and his own work with the maestro, Leonard Bernstein was a man who cast a profound influence on Michael Stern. Most notably was the occasion when he was presented by Bernstein to the New York Philharmonic as a protege and given his debut with the orchestra. Michael described in detail his nerves, Lenny's towering ego, and his candid comments on the realities of being thrust onto the New York Philharmonic podium that Bernstein inhabited at the time. Leonard Bernstein was a man who lived in dualities. In Bradley Cooper's beautifully filmed and acted biopic, Maestro, we are introduced to many of them. For instance, the inner conflict that Bernstein experienced in trying to maintain the balance in his work as a composer and as a conductor. He was a showman who needed to be the center of attention in every room, though also desired private family time. And then, of course, his bisexuality, which was complex at the time. Michael Stern and Leonard Bernstein both went to Harvard and the Curtis Institute, but the similarity that stands out to me is their immense connection to humanity and devotion to music and mankind. Both are natural educators, bringing a lifetime of musical prowess to a wide variety of audiences and orchestras. So let's join Michael Stern again as he continues with his views on Lenny, private memories, and Bernstein's engagement with the work of composer Gustav Mahler. For me, the real story of Lenny is that contrast, the contrast between being the creative composer and the recreative performer, between being a Broadway jazz guy and a classical guy, mm -hmm. between wanting to be every man to everyone and being one of the great intellectuals that music ever produced, that America ever produced in music, of being kind of patrician and Boston and educated and also a good Jewish boy from an immigrant family. There are all of these tensions. The world of creativity lives in those tensions. The movie didn't do that. And I suppose from a salacious point of view, or from a, a narrow point of view, that emphasis on the salacious element might have been more of a hook. Yeah. But it yeah. doesn't begin to describe the complexity and the richness of his character. And so that for me was a personal thing because the movie was not trying to do that. It was trying to do this one thing and it did it well. But if you say to me, oh, well, this was now people know Leonard Bernstein, they don't. The movie works because it was not trying to be a movie about music. So right. the fact that it's not a movie about music is fine with me. And we don't have to talk about, you know, the conducting or the performance aspects in the movie. That's just Hollywood. Hollywood. But <laughs> for me, the frustration is that when you hear, let's say, Bradley Cooper give an interview and he's saying, oh, you know, it was really, this is a labor of love for me. It was a mission because Lenny was a rock star and more people have to know him. This movie is not going to make people understand the real Lenny Bernstein or, or approach why he was the extraordinary musician and artist and person and even family man. He was, for all of his complications and craziness, a devoted father. 
And there is some of that in the movie, but it's all through the prism of the other stuff. Yeah. And I think that's a shame. I mean, some people would come away and say, a complicated guy for sure, but often not thoughtful, not nice. And mm-hmm. then there are these other things that happen in the movie where he's incredibly generous and nice. Mm-hmm. And that was that was another tension in him, of course, mm-hmm. because he was incredibly giving and incredibly narcissistic. I mean, you yeah. can't get up and be Leonard Bernstein without a pretty healthy ego. Ego, that huge ego, that colossus, as you said. He was yeah. he was like the cosmos. It was so huge. You know, it's interesting when I see interviews with his children and they talk about his need to find that balance in family. He really needed that connection. And this is something that permeated everything in his life, you know, from his music to his family, to grabbing somebody off stage while he's smoking a cigarette and kissing someone on the lips. It was all about connection on some point. It was like he was ravenous for this all the time. Well, I think there's a reason why people are so in need of that kind of affirmation and contact. When he said, as he often did, that he hated to be alone, I think that was true. Yeah. I think he didn't like to be alone. But when he was not alone, he wasn't comfortable being on the periphery. He had to be in the center of whatever the non-aloneness was, right? Um, Yeah, I'll share one story. It was on one of those visits in Philadelphia when he was coming to work at Curtis and I was still studying there. And it happened to coincide with a weekend when my father was playing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Okay. So I wanted nothing to do with either of them because with all of my cohorts at school, I did not want to be, I I didn't play that card at all. Okay. And I just, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. however, my father felt extremely insulted that I wouldn't have dinner with him. And of course he was going to have dinner with Lenny. And so he said, you have to come and we're going to Bookbinders. Bookbinders was a famous fish restaurant down the street from Curtis and not far from my apartment. And so how can I say no? It's like a three minute walk. Right. And, uh, (laughs) We ended up at a table. It was the four of us, the two of them and me, and completely improbably, and I don't know why he was in town, Harold Schoenberg. Now, Harold oh. Schoenberg, for people who don't know, was the lead critic of the New York Times for all the years that Lenny was music director of the New York Philharmonic. He was there from 1957 to 1969, I think. And very often... Schoenberg did not write particularly favorably about Lenny. In later years, he had a reassessment and, you know, then Lenny became it. But I think Schoenberg, and I'm not a big fan of critics usually, but Schoenberg probably had some kind of chip on his shoulder that he felt he had to take this rash upstart down a peg or two. Okay. And Lenny didn't like reading criticism about himself. Who does, right? Right. But it sort of stuck with him. So now... You fast forward a couple of decades, and he's on the top of the world. He's the most famous conductor in the world, arguably, or at least one of them. He needs to apologize to no one, and he certainly needs to convince no one of anything, right? But we're sitting at dinner, and I noticed pretty early on in the meal that Lenny had this agenda that he was, before the end of the meal, going to extract from Schoenberg the admission that he had been wrong in all those things that he had written about him. And I'm thinking... This critic, writer, what what do you you're Leonard Bernstein? What you're you you need to apologize to nobody. You have to what do you care, right? And he he remembered specific things that had been written about him. And I just thought to myself, this is really fascinating to me. I mean, I'm not a I don't pretend to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but 
it was really interesting to me that it bothered him so much. Yeah. So I, you know, that, that to me explains a lot about his need for being around people and being then in the center. At the same time, he could be incredibly insightful and generous and empathetic. He was a very human person all the time. And I think it was that, that humanity you definitely hear in his music, the music that he wrote, and in his music making. Yeah, without question. Yeah, that humanity, again, that need for connection. You know, after I saw the film, I came away thinking, I need a cigarette. Because there was so much smoking going on in that film. I'm, I swear, I'm not a smoker, but I felt I wanted a cigarette. And this yeah. was the reality, wasn't it? That he always had a cigarette in his fingers. There was a cigarette in the wings. There was a, a glass of scotch waiting for him, all to keep that adrenaline like controlled. Was that what it was about, do you think, Michael? I just think he, he had that kind of manic drive. I mean, Obsessive. people say, oh, well, you know, he's so flippy and so forth. He was actually incredibly hardworking yeah, yeah. when he was writing. And when he was on the podium, there was no doubt that he knew everything that he wanted. I mean, he had studied, he had absorbed, he had digested, and he had this, you have to be with me on this phrase. You have to be with me in this moment. You know, That only comes from hard work. As gifted as he was, as easily as things came to him, mm -hmm. he put in the work. Wow. And even in film scoring, can you talk to me about his score for Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront? So I, I can only tell you what I think about that score, yeah. which is mm -hmm. it's, it's pure genius. And it's incredible to me if you see the movie. Well, first of all, it is a textbook example of how music can add more than dialogue sometimes. In, mm -hmm. I mean, if you take the music out of that movie, the movie becomes much, much less. Yeah. But what is amazing to me is that he never had scored anything for movies before. Yes, he had written for the stage, totally different uh, skill set. And in terms of timing and figuring out, you know, bits and pieces and how they worked and extracts and so forth, it's uncanny. I mean, it's just nobody taught him how to do that. And he just did it yeah. perfectly. But even that is not the biggest credit, I think. The biggest credit is that when he made the symphonic suite that is often played, I've done it many times, it's a great piece, simply as an orchestral work, as a little mini tone poem, the music absolutely hangs together as if it were just a piece of pure music. And so then you're thinking of the narrative of the movie, and you're thinking of all the mm -hmm. depiction that it was helping on the screen, and it's even more impressive. But just wow. as pure music, it's incredible. So you've got all three of those things, the fact that he wasn't taught, the fact that it worked so well in the movie, and the fact that completely on its own, it, there are a lot of great scores where if you divorce the music from the movie, eh, it's nice, it's recognizable, but I want to see the movie. It makes you want to see the movie. I mean, and it's a great, you know, Rod Steiger, Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint. I mean, it's That's just right. great performances. But on its own, the music is completely a character that holds its own against any one of those actors. Wow. You know, Stephen Sondheim said that Leonard Bernstein had an innate feeling for music that worked in a theater and worked around the melodrama. He just had that naturally. And considering that he came from this family that were not musical, and he just popped into the universe and just had this immense talent when he first went to a piano, I'm not surprised. He just seemed to have it all. Well, I mean, there is one thing about the Jewish tradition, and that it's there's a lot of singing. Mm-hmm. 
the vocalization of music was not unknown to him. And the second thing is that he had an innate sense of time, of timing. Mm-hmm. So he knew how to pace things. It's one of the reasons why as a conductor or as a pianist, but mostly as a conductor, why his performances work and are sometimes incredibly beautiful, even though I would say every one of his tempo choices was somehow controversial. Really? Very slow in the slow stuff, pretty fast in the fast okay. stuff. Yeah. And a lot of those tempi, if they were done by somebody else, less skilled, would fall apart. With him, it never fell apart because mm-hmm. he had this feeling of connection, this long line. He never lost the sight, the feeling of that long line. And so he would take something so slowly, you'd think this is absolutely going to grind to a halt and fall apart. You would never want to do it that way yourself. But you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, this sounds like it's supposed to sound with him. So I think that's what Sondheim was was referring to. He had this understanding of movement, physical movements, because he wrote pretty good ballet music too. Fancy Free is a great score. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um but he also had movement of human expression, right? So whether it was talking or singing or drama, I mean, he was a voracious reader and he had read everything. You know, he was pulling all of these disparate experiences, the personal mm-hmm. ones that he had read or mm-hmm. seen or listened mm-hmm. to, and then the larger experiences of his life, everything sort of played into this understanding of how human beings express themselves. Mm-hmm. And his music is extremely organic for that reason. Absolutely. And then when you're looking at something like West Side Story, where it was so complex and the use of the counterpoint when pulled together was just electrifying, absolutely electrifying. I mean, I think that West Side Story is one of those, there was not, never anything like it before on Broadway. Right, right. And it was operatic without being operatic. You know, it, it wouldn't have worked if he was trying to write the American opera. He wasn't. He was trying to write for America. It's such a New York, America, late 50s, early 60s piece. Mm -hmm. And yet it's timeless because it is exactly what it is without ever trying to be what it's not. It's not trying to be an opera. It's not trying to be a vaudeville piece. It's not trying to be slapstick. It's not trying to be comedy. It's not trying to be heavy drama. It just is what it is in a unique expression. I suppose you could say it was genre mixing but without this heavy-handed, like, oh, look how clever I am. I'm writing a kind of modern bebop song, but I'm using five-point counterpoint. It it wasn't that. He was just... And it worked on a theatrical level incredibly well. I mean, Arthur Lawrence and Jerry Robbins had something to do with that, too. Yeah, they sure Um, did. (laughs) But what what a formidable team, you know? And then you're bringing Sondheim in as the, the fourth wheel, so to speak. I mean, Sondheim, who was such a formidable musical mind and... He was just the spare lyricist, right? And his contribution to the show is enormous. So mm-hmm. you had these incredible people, yeah, yeah, all like-minded, singularly devoted to doing this one thing, which was to make this show special. The reason it worked is because they weren't setting out to say, oh, we have to rewrite the book. They were just writing a great show. Yeah, it changed was. history. The Jets are coming out on top tonight. We're gonna watch Bernardo drop tonight. Let Puerto Rican punkle go down. And when he's hollered uncle, we'll tear up the town. 
We'll be in back of you, boy. You're gonna flatten him good. One, two, three. And then we'll have us a ball tonight. So talk to me about Mahler and Bernstein. I read that Bernstein felt that Mahler was two people locked in one body. And if you look at Bernstein, you think maybe there were two people locked in him or maybe many. Do you think there's any truth to that? And why was Mahler so important to him? What spoke to him? Mahler captured the spirit of his time, that incredible moment of change as the 19th century slipped into the 20th and all the turbulence. I mean, Mahler died before World War I started, but there was all of this change, mm-hmm. industrial change, social change, the rise of feminism, the rise of nationalism, the rise of the individual over the collective. And it was changing so rapidly, you mm-hmm. know? And remember, this was the era of Freud also. And so in Mahler's symphonies, all of that is reflected, all of that angst, all of that change, all of that turmoil. And Lenny was caught up. His life was intertwined in that change that was happening so rapidly through the decades of the 20th century from the 20s on. Yeah. And I think that spoke to him simply because his musical imagination was also in that direction. Pull in stuff from everything. Okay. Uh, and Mahler uses folk music. Mahler uses Jewish music. Mahler uses military music. Mahler uses dance music. He's got the most aching pathos and the greatest jubilation. Mahler was also pretty self-confident. He wrote a lot about my view of the world. He had a very healthy sense of self. And he had terrible doubts. He had great moments of exaltation. He had terrible moments of tragedy in his personal life. And he was also facing his own mortality once he was given the diagnosis of his heart condition. All of these things, I think, were meaningful to Lenny. He was also Jewish and struggling with that. Mahler famously converted Converted. to try to avoid the anti-Semitism in Vienna and unsuccessfully. Lenny definitely identified as a Jew, but he also saw himself as a universal person. Mahler was first and foremost a composer, but he was also one of the preeminent conductors of his time. And that is absolutely who Lenny was. So I think Lenny saw in Mahler bits of himself. Himself, He also fell in love with the music very early on. Mm -hmm. So when you come to Mahler's more emotionally charged music as a teenager, you get infected with that kind of overheated romanticism. And I think Lenny really understood Mahler's dialect. And so... Again, he does Mahler like nobody else. And if yeah. you try to imitate his Mahler, it simply doesn't work. Right. But it was a pretty authentic and extraordinarily personal take on Mahler's music. This is one thing I thought was a right choice in the movie Maestro, was the choice of the Mahler Resurrection Symphony. We got seven minutes of music, and it was really thrilling. I think they were, well, recreating, it was, uh, per, they were recreating they were the recre- performance in Ely Cathedral, I think. Yeah which is a famous performance, but it's just, it's taken on a viral 
status. I mean, you can find online the complete performance, but the YouTube clip is really those last few yeah, minutes. minutes. And that's a shame because it can become almost a caricature of itself. Mm-hmm. And it looks like he's emoting for the camera. He wasn't. Lenny always knew when a camera was trained on him, mm-hmm. but he also was truly caught up in the moment. And here I'm a little bit maybe overthinking this because it's what I do for a living, but it came off as a little bit like a bad carbon copy. I think for me, the greatest thing about Lenny's conducting, and there are many great things about it, is that he was always, always, always Again, the tension of being completely in control with his hands on all the pieces of the puzzle without ever micromanaging the performance. So there was complete abandon Mm. and freedom and at the same time, incredible rigor in the architecture of what he was trying to do was incredibly clear, the structure, the organization. And yet what is thrilling about his performances and so mesmerizing sometimes is that it sounded like he was making it up as he was going along. Yeah. Yeah. Those two things were not divorced from one another, but that also is a tension. And that is the great genius of great conductors, how they can ride the wave and guide the wave at the same time. And he did that better than anybody. You know, it's interesting. Lenny was very short. Mm -hmm, That's right. And when you saw him on the podium, he looked like he was 10 feet tall. He, He stood like a king. And there was never a false gesture. There was never an awkward gesture. There was never a jerky, out of sync gesture. Even when he was doing a lot, there was something incredibly natural and flowing and organic. Um, And that, if you're a professional conductor, you try to imitate it, it would be difficult to do and wrong because it would look like you were copying somebody. Not being a trained conductor, there's no way that Bradley Cooper was going to look like that. Exactly. And so the guidance that he had, especially in that scene, is to me not at all what makes that scene on video great when you watch it the way the original performance was with Lenny because there wasn't an out-of-sync, out-of-breath motion for one second in the entire Mm. hour and 30 minutes or whatever it is of that piece. And that that's why he was so great. And so, but I think that the reason, and also him coming off the stage and embracing Felicia in the movie, that 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 was slightly, yeah, I don't think so. No. Yeah. I don't think that happened at all. (laughs) Well, I think there are things about this movie that are incredible. I think there are things that have been missed. And for musicians, it's difficult. But I do believe that it's important to raise Leonard Bernstein in all our consciousness right now for all those reasons you're talking about so eloquently and and especially for things like the Young People's Concerts, which changed my life, literally changed my life. He brought us in the lives of so many people. Sure. Oh yeah. my gosh. And yeah. he could demy- he could demystify music and explain music without yes. talking down to anybody. That's right. And without dumbing down the music. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, I think about this also in the context of what my parents would have done, what his uh legacy was as an activist, Felicia's also. What would they have been doing in this moment uh, in our American uh situation? In our American situation. Yeah. Just the absence of honest thought and the deep, like the moral compass is so hard to find, let's say. They knew where they stood 
you know, and they advocated for the things that they believed in. That's right. Because they felt it was their responsibility to do so. And I think they would be dismayed, like many of us are, by everything that's happening in the world. And of course, with his dedication to Israel, the incredible things he did, concertizing there, the same with your father. It's something really to reflect on right now. Incredible. It is. Michael, thank you so much. This has been so insightful. And thank you for all the candid stories. I love that. It was fun. It was fun. I love that you came out of that 1986 experience, a stronger man. (laughs) Well, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That's what they say. Exactly. Exactly. Just one thing before you go. I notice you are ending your music directorship at Kansas City Symphony. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I see you have actually programmed the Mahler Resurrection Symphony. I did that before the movie came out. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I also feel very close to Mahler, and there are a few, few of his symphonies, which I think are, I mean, number one and number five I've done many times, and I think they're great. Number three and number nine are mm-hmm. life-changing, especially yeah. number three in a way. Mm, um, number four is perfect. Yeah. I mean, I like six and seven. Eight, I have a difficult time with, but six and seven really? are great. But number four is, yeah, it's. I think that's the weakest link. Das Lied von der Erde, the Song of the Earth, is brilliant. But there's something about the Resurrection Symphony, which is an earlier work for him, right? I mean, it's only two out of nine plus that's the right. Song of the Earth. Um, there was something very, I mean, just from a compositional point of view and from an imagination point of view, there are things in that symphony which are extraordinary. And then there's a kind of, valedictory exaltation which is exactly what they try to capture in the movie mm-hmm. for that ending it it's not the story of the resurrection Mahler was not that religious a guy and the piece is not religious per se and that's what makes it so great there is a, the idea and this text is of course what it is but it's not about religion so much as it is about humanity yeah and as I approach the end of my tenure in Kansas City especially in this moment in our American history, mm-hmm. it, that's a pretty good message that I wanted to share one last time with my friends and colleagues in the orchestra. Humanity reigns in the world of music with Michael Stern. I hope my listeners will seek out Stanford-based Orchestra Lumos and his fine work with them. You can also find the film Maestro streaming on Netflix. It celebrates a musical genius And we can all benefit by revisiting this legend and to be reminded of the power of inspiration. If you visit Center Stage with PamelaCoon.com, you will find more interviews such as this to help revivify our love of the arts. So until next week, stay safe out there, everyone. This is Pamela Coon, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. (laughs) 